Uh, welcome to Christchurch uh, Bible Study. We're going to be looking at Amos chapter 2 today uh, as we go through the series of burden that the Lord carries and also the fact that our God is a roaring lion who is going to declare what he will um, and he's going to do so with a strong voice. Let's go ahead and pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, I pray that you keep your household, church, continually in your true religion, that we would seek you with all that we have, that we would remember that you are God and that you are to be feared, but also that we can trust in the hope of your heavenly grace as you defend us by your mighty power through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, both now and forever. Amen. So let us continue to see this message that uh, is roaring out like a lion in chapter 2. So we've talked about Damascus, chapter 1. Obviously, Israel and Judah do not like Damascus. We've talked about Gaza. We've talked about Tyre. We've talked about Edom. We've talked about Ammon. All of these are places that Israel have been off and on fighting against, sometimes allied with, but usually they're fighting in some kind of fashion. Chapter 2, I'm going to read the entire chapter, and hopefully we can get through it today. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent, because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kiriot. Moab will go down in great tumult. Amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet, I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials him. Again, a nation that Israel doesn't particularly like. However, verse 4, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son, use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lay down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fine. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruits above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youth. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you. The cart crushes when loaded with grain. Swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. And the horseman will not save his life. 
Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we'll get started um, with Edom, with Moab. My bad. Uh, Edom was last week. Moab. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent, because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kiriot. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with her, with him, says the Lord. Uh, this is a very interesting passage. Does anyone know what verse 1 of chapter 2 might be talking about? It is a very interesting passage because it actually, um, in the passage it refers to, which is 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3. Starting in verse 24. But when the Moabites came up to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns, and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Only Kir Harset was left with its stones in place. But men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who is to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. Now in 2 Kings chapter 3, uh, it, it uses a pronoun over and over and over. Him, he, him, he, him. Uh, and so one would assume that the king of Moab is offering his own son as a sacrifice. We see this actually uh, multiple times in Greek history. Uh, for instance, when you read about the um, uh, Homer's uh, Iliad, for instance, the king offers his daughter. Well, eventually he offers his daughter. Um, he's not happy about it, but he made a promise, and the promise was uh, poorly considered. And so he offers his daughter eventually. Here, uh, this king is offering his son. Um, but in fact, if you read in Amos, it says that uh, Amos chapter, what we're studying today, Amos chapter 2, verse 1, uh, it says it's talking about Moab. And he says because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. So it, it was a very interesting um passage in that the king of Moab and the king of Edom are working together to fight against uh, Judah. They're losing, or against Israel in this case. They're losing. The king of Moab tries to get to the king of Edom, but they can't. So he offers uh, what, what many people consider to be the crown prince, the co-regent of the Edomites, who was probably with him at the time. Uh, trying to fight his way with the king of Moab to his father, the other king, the co-regent. And when they failed, the king of Moab sacrifices the crown prince of Edom. Of Edom. Now, one of the interesting things that I think we should recognize is that when you read Amos, you read about Damascus, you read about Gaza, you read about Tyre, you read about Edom, you read about Moab. And all of the things that they do work. So let's go back to uh, Second Kings uh, um, and read once again. 
When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, again, probably the firstborn son of the king of Edom, who he's trying to break through to, who is to succeed him as king, so co-regent, which is why Amish can call him a king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. And the fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. It worked. This king of Moab, he sacrifices uh, this, this um, young adult, co-regent. We don't know exactly how old he was. But he sacrificed this, this um, prince, this king. And the people of Israel are forced to flee. We don't know exactly why they were forced to flee. Uh, some people speculate that the uh, Edomites were exceedingly angry uh, and, and were enraged, but not against the king of Moab, against the Israelites, which to our minds obviously doesn't make much sense, but it worked. When you talk about these other places who are um, selling slaves, they're actually getting things. They're making money. They're succeeding in what they are doing right for a long time in fact for some of these people they may have never seen the judgment of god on them in their lifetime and amish comes along and he says okay this is what you did but you did not get away with it when you took slaves when you sold people who were young and in need when you sacrificed people to gain something you might think you got away with it, but you will not. Again, Aaron mentioned last week that these are not um, prophecies per se. Amos isn't a son of a prophet, nor is he a prophet. He's a seer. He sees what will happen. And as we mentioned last week, it's apocalyptic. It will happen. These people will see the judgment of God. So what is Judah? What are the people of Judah? What are the people of Israel thinking right about now? Yay! This is great! All these people who are doing all these bad things, they've sold us into slavery, they defeated us in battle because they did these things that are just abominable, and they're going to get what's coming to them. Awesome. I can't wait to see the apocalypse of the Lord come upon these people. And yet, the next phrase is what? For three sins of Judah, even for four I will not relent. We hear things all the time. and We're like, ha, yes, they deserve that. I can't wait for the day of the Lord. I can't wait for this to happen. I can't wait for this person who gossips all day long at the office to get fired, whatever it might be. But we forget sometimes that the day of the Lord is something that perhaps we should fear, right? So let's uh, look at Judah as God did. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah, they, and this fire will consume fortresses of Jerusalem. Uh, Shimshon, you have a question? Yes. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Um, just, just wanted to mention um, yeah, the 
the system which um, Amos used in delivering this prophecy was very, um, you know, in chapter one, it started mentioning Damascus, Elam, Ashur, and um, these are neighboring countries around Israel. Yes. Um, and by the time it gets to chapter two, it's now moving closer to home, you yes. know, mentioning Moab, you know, it was using in proximity around the places was going around and the people were most probably listening to him at that time. But when it comes to Judah, they, don't, they now know that the, this prophecy is coming back home. You know, it's coming back home. It's you know, using it a very nice way to pull them back. And finally, we get Israel being mentioned. You know, um, they would have been very comfortable, you know, just listening. Oh, he's talking about other people, talking about other people. And yeah. all of a sudden, they realize that, oh, this thing is coming back home. It's coming back home. And boom, in chapter two, you know, he finally nails it on the head because the prophecy was to Israel, but he started with mentioning all these people. And at the end of the day, we see in the rest of the book, he doesn't um, concern himself, himself about other people, but, you know, the message is actually to Israel. So his intro and the way he was able to get the people's attention was very unique. Yeah. And, and we often talk about, we talk about Acts, right? Chapter one, we talk about the Great Commission that the message of the gospel should go out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the earth. But here it's actually going the other way around. It's starting outwards and coming back in. Yeah. And the people of Israel yeah. were supposed to be a light. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they were supposed to be a light to the nations. It was supposed to come from them and go out. But what is Judah doing? They have been led astray by false gods. They have yeah. rejected the law of the Lord. They have not kept his decrees. Um, I won't go through the entire thing, but Leviticus chapter 26 is a great chapter. Um, I'm sure Aaron would talk about how it's one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. And I can't completely disagree with him. Um, but you have this concept over and over and over. What will happen when Israel rejects the law of the Lord? What will happen when they reject the decrees of the Lord, Ravi. Um, you know, the Israelites, uh, their decree, as you just said, La, La Orgoim, they were supposed to be a light to the nations mm -hmm. to teach the nations all the things that were important to the Lord. Not just the law, but the Torah, which are two different things, the mitzvot, the things that, that are important to him. And even today, after uh, Israel failed, but then the Bible is mass-produced and the world can actually read all of these things that are important to the Lord, we still reject them, even today. Yeah. We just go, nope, all that's in the past. Those things aren't important for us. We have, we have something new now. But that's, that's old. That's the Old Testament. Yeah. And if we, use, if we use this type of terminology, then we reject that God is the same yesterday as he is today as he is tomorrow. And yeah. so I don't, I don't know that we're a whole lot different today than, than they were then. Well, this is part of the point, right? When you look at Judah, when you look at Israel, I'm not going to say that this is something to me. I'm not Judah. I'm not Israel. And yet I read it and I say, oh, uh-oh, maybe there is a problem, right? Because you read some of these things, rejecting the law of the Lord. Yep, Michael. We know in Romans when Paul describes how the uh, nations were grafted into the uh, the tree of, of, of Israel. But we know that God looks upon us in our hearts. There is no Jew, Greek, 
male, female, slave, master. So yeah, all of this is for me. I mean, I'm guilty of all of this. It convicts me. Yeah, it should convict us. When we read about the day of the Lord, I think when you read Jeremiah, when you read Amos, when you read um, Joel, uh, right, and you, you see that the day of the Lord is coming, it should be something that scares me. I should fear God. Um, and not only should I fear God, I should look to myself and say, am I following the law of God? Am I listening to the, uh, to the statutes of the Lord? Um, Vida. Just a quick question. It says, because, um, and they've despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Yes. So you've got the law and the commandments. I know they intertwined and interlinked, but is there something unique between having done both the law and the commandments? Uh, partly, again, we're looking at um, different ideas. When you read uh, Leviticus chapter 26, it, it talks quite a bit about rejecting the law of the Lord. When you read something like 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 15, it says they despised his statutes and covenant that he made with their fathers and the warning that he gave them, and they went after false idols and became false. They became false. They went after false idols, and so they themselves became false. And they followed the nations that were around them. So instead of being the light to the nations, the nations were actually the darkness invading them. Yeah, in, in about six weeks, Aaron will do a, um, a talk on uh, Torah and what that actually means, the Torah of the Lord. Um, and we'll have a more uh, precise understanding, perhaps, of that, hopefully. Um, uh, but uh, in part, I think it's, it's uh, uh, Hebraic poetry, and in part, yes, they are different things. Um, so Hokim and Torah, in this particular case, are, are definitely different. Uh, but at the same time, it's poetic saying, you've rejected all of it, right? When you have this kind of poetic structure, it's saying it's emphasizing the point. You've not just kind of rejected it, you've rejected it. Um, yes. Right. And so not only have they rejected the law of the Lord, but they've also been led astray by the false gods. Again, um, when you read something like Kuntil Ajrud inscription, the inscription on uh, this piece of plaster, it states, may he lengthen their day and may they be shaded and recount to the Tetragrammaton, Adonai, of Taman, and to his Asherah. And you also have, like when you go to um, Beersheba, I believe it is, um, or maybe Arad. Actually, it might be Arad, or both. I wouldn't be surprised if it was both. I think it is Arad, though. You have a larger um, altar. You have a larger altar, and you have a smaller altar. One to the Lord, and one to his wife, right? And you go through all of the land of Israel, and whenever you do archaeology, you find, oh, look, there's an idol to this god. Oh, look, there's an idol to that god. And many of the archaeologists will turn around and say, oh, look, the people of Israel didn't actually follow God. The Bible must be wrong. <laughs> no. And then I turn around, and I'm like, oh, you mean the Bible that directly states that the people didn't follow the god and that they worshipped other idols? And who does you're, follow God? You're picking and choosing what you want. <laughs> um, and and it, it really is a matter of, and even like um, pig, right? Uh, so archaeologists can know where 
Jewish people lived, because everywhere else, there are pig bones everywhere. In Israel, only 20% of the bones are pig. Right? <laughs> the people of Israel didn't actually follow the statutes of the Lord. They didn't actually follow the Torah of the Lord. Some of them did, some of them didn't. Does this sound familiar? We sometimes follow the Lord, sometimes we don't. Maybe, maybe we won't have a statue. Maybe we'll just have, um, for Israel, pig. Maybe we won't have pig, but we will have, you know, the god of, of or the goddess of fertility and Baal, the god of, of uh, rain because we're a farmer. Yep, Michael. I'm paraphrasing, but I just this morning read something that said to, in effect, the grace shown to sins uh, brought on so much glory, showed so much more glory than if sin had never entered into the world. So yeah. when we see Moses saying, choose this day, life or death, I put before you life and death. Well, yeah. you know what's going to happen. I mean, and Paul says it again in Romans, I can't do the things that I know are right. And the things I know are wrong, I rush into that. And then he concludes, of course, who will save me? Yeah. So um, what happens? I will send a fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Again, there will be judgment. This is prior to the Assyrians. Uh, again, this is probably around 750 um, BC. The Assyrians come in um, multiple times, actually, throughout the 730s and 720s. Um, they don't actually... Uh, destroy Jerusalem itself, but they certainly do set fire to the rest of Judah. And in fact, eventually we do know that the um, Babylonians come in later and they do destroy Jerusalem. And the thing is, we knew that was going to happen. They knew that was going to happen. That's why Solomon prays. When we sin, <laughs> listen to our prayers and forgive us because we will. When you read, uh, you know, the, the dedication of the temple, when you read Deuteronomy 6 through 11, God knows that they will, and he says, when you do, repent. When you do realize that you've rejected the law of the Lord. And it's interesting, I didn't mention it, um, but Numbers 1431 uh, says, but your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the, the land that you have rejected. So the people rejected the land, they rejected the promise of God, and God said, okay, you don't get it, but your children will, right? And later on, he talks about uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11, chapter 8, chapter 9. God says, teach your children so that they won't, and you also as, as the uh, teacher, you won't say, oh, this is mine. I have it. I got it. I earned it when God was the one that gave it to you. Um, and if you don't do that, then you will be removed from the land temporarily because God promised that he would bring them back. But for a time, they would be removed. And this hasn't happened once, happened multiple times. Israel. So Amish is from Judah, but he went up to talk. Uh, eventually, we learn. He did some, several of his, his um, roarings of a lion in Beit El, in Israel proper. Although for various time periods, the, the people of Israel and the people of Judah fought each other, even though they were supposed to be brothers, over the land of Benjamin. Because the land of Benjamin is the through route between Jericho and the Philistines, Gaza, and going south to Egypt. So the, 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 um, the uh, plateau of Benjamin is very important. And Bethel controls the northern 
part of the plateau. If, if Judah can control Bethel, Israel can't actually come down and take the plateau for trade, economy, politics, etc. Um, but at this moment, to be part of Israel, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fine. So now the people who are listening are hearing God's judgment against them specifically. So obviously we, we normally kind of think of, of um, the prophets coming from Judah and most of them, many of them do. But he's talking to Israel, the northern nation now, in their location, directly. Um, the first thing they do sounds actually very similar to some of the things that happened in chapter 1, slave trade. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. So if, if we go to uh, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 39, and we, we mentioned, uh, Aaron mentioned last week again, that slavery was something that God allowed, but how is it done? If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He still sold himself to you for a time, because after a certain amount of time, he'll go free, regardless of how much he owed. But even if they do sell themselves to you, you will treat them in a certain way. You will not make <coughs> him serve. As you, uh, I went through um, about, what, three months ago, I went through um, Second Kings chapter 4 with another group. Uh, as we looked at the uh, parasha, um, Genesis 18 through 22, which is very much about women, and I, I believe. Um, and Second Kings chapter 4 is about one of the sons of the prophets, or more specifically, his wife. Um, so again, Amos, there were many schools of prophecy around. And in fact, um, I believe that most, most uh, Midrash uh believes that this is actually um, Ovadia, Ob Obadiah, uh, not necessarily the Obadiah that wrote or that we see in, in um, the book of Obadiah, but a different Obadiah, the servant of the Lord, probably a relatively common name. Um, so there was a prophet who, unlike most of the people from the school of prophets, actually followed God was upright, was righteous. And, and they believe that he was the one that, that Second Kings chapter 4 is talking about as the person who died eventually, destitute without money. Um, imagine that a prophet that actually serves God is the one who dies destitute and without money. All the other prophets who go to the school of prophecy probably are doing pretty well off. Yeah, Vida. What she's saying makes me think of, of Hebrews 11, where it says that all these people said the world wasn't worthy of them. They lived in caves and they didn't have anything and they were sawn in half. So you're right. I think a lot of people that really serve the Lord really suffer and go through hardships because they're hated by the world. 
Yeah. And to be honest, even now in the modern church, I think they hate it, especially by the modern church. They're kicked out. Yeah. Um, and, and again, Aaron mentioned last week uh, that too often the things that we're excited to hear are the prophecies that tell us how good life will be. Oh, this won't happen. That won't happen. You'll be fine. And we ignore some of the things that say, oh, you might want to be careful. You're sinning. You're not paying attention to the statutes of the Lord. You're not paying attention to the law of the Lord. And why is that important? It's because the law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the Torah of the Lord, is what tells us what God wants. And you can't love God if you don't know what he wants. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not the same God as the God of Muhammad. How do we know that? We read what each of these God does. So in the case of uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, we see the mercy of God. Because you have this prophet who died. And his wife and his children are left <coughs> to pay their creditor. And the creditor comes and he wants to take away who? The two children. The man is not selling himself to pay for his debts. This man is coming and forcing the payment. And I will remind you all, hopefully, that the payment probably was not much because the lady, I believe, seems to have lived in a relatively small town. And she went to all of her neighbors and gathered up their jars and filled them with oil and then sold that oil, oil that was grown everywhere around them. You're not going to make a lot of money selling the thing that is most sold in your area. This is what they grew. You'll make money, of course. But she sold it and it was enough to pay the creditor and live on for long enough for her or her children to find other work. So how much did the creditor actually need? Certainly not two children as slaves. It was a small amount. And God was merciful. He came and sent Elisha, Elisha to this lady, middle of nowhere, a random wife of one of the prophets. Okay, maybe, maybe, maybe it was Obadiah, Ovadia, right? Maybe. Maybe it was something, someone that Elisha actually knew in person. But he still goes there. He's sent there. He meets her. And God does the miraculous. God is merciful because that was the action that God took. Allah is merciful. So says the Quran. But what story tells us, what fact can we look at in history and say, oh, look, here, Allah is merciful. Where is it? Where do you find it? So is, are they the same person? Do they have the same quality? They do not. You can have two David, two Davids, right? They stand right next to each other. You call them by the same name. They both look to you, but they're two very, very different people because they act in different ways. One treats his wife with care. He elevates her. He calls her his helpmate, his beloved, the one who stands with him. And the other one beats his wife up. Not the same person. Okay, they called David. Big deal. How do they act? These people, they act in the same way their neighbors. They were supposed to be a light. And we'll, we'll talk later on in verses 9 and 10 about the Amorites, the people that Israel was supposed to push out of the land with the Canaanites, who were evil in every way. 
right? But you go back and you read, um, I lost it somewhere. Uh, you read about, uh, and they burned, uh, this is 2 Kings 17, 17, and they burned their sons and their daughters' offerings and used divinations and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. They did the exact thing that the people who came before them, rather than doing the new things, the statutes of the Lord, the following the Torah of the Lord. They sold the innocents for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Nothing. A couple jars of oil. That's it. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. We read about this throughout the Tanakh, everywhere. And if you want one thing to take away today, you can say, ah, I follow the statutes of the Lord. I follow the Torah of the Lord. Do you? What's happening to the poor around you? What's happening to the oppressed around you? You're going to take away one thing. Take away that. Father and son used the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. The holy name of the Lord is profaned. What happens in every temple of the world? Harlotry. You go to the temple, there's someone who's a harlot there for you. You go, your son goes, your father goes, and you make your God the same as all these other gods. You profane the name of the Lord. No different. Okay. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is the same as Allah. He is the same as Baal. He is the same as Zeus. There's no difference. They're all the same. God isn't holy. He's profane. He's common. He's exactly like every other God. So in fact, it's not just that the people are sinning by, you know, fornication, adultery, whatever it might be. They're actually profaning the name of God. I have um, so many verses. I won't go through all of them. Leviticus 19.12. You shall not swear by name, my name falsely and so profane the name of, the, your, of your God. I am the Lord. By the way, all of these are from Leviticus, one of the best books in the Bible. Um, Leviticus 19.29. Do not profane your daughters by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land becomes full of depravity. Um, Leviticus 20, verse 3. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech. Sound familiar? Like as in verse 1 of chapter 2, sacrificing their child to Molech, the king of, of you know, that place across the river, Transjordan. Because he's given one of his children to Moloch to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. Why do we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Because God has put his name here. Okay, we should pray for the place that we live, the country, the city. We should pray for peace around the world. But here, when people hear about the violence, they automatically associate it with God. How could he allow it? Yeah. And you see this in, in Nehemiah. You see it in Jeremiah. You see it. In Ezekiel, they come to this place and they say, ah, this place is a ruin. <laughs> Who is their God? They must have had a, a crappy God. I mean, he didn't even save their city, the capital. It's just a ruin here. Foxes run over it. Jackals run over it. And the name of the Lord is profaned. And the thing is, God allows it to happen because it's already being profaned. Because the people are coming and they're sacrificing their children to Molech. And this isn't in Second Chronicles, right before Babylon. This is in Leviticus, early on. 
It happens throughout the time period. They continuously profane the name. And it's not something that God will stand for. And so he allows Jerusalem to fall. In fact, as you will see, he says it will fall or have seen in uh, verse 5, right? It will fall. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Now, conversely, God will bring the people back. God will restore the land. Right, Robbie? <coughs> when we come to, when we have people come to the heritage center, when we have people come to the church, if for whatever reason, Robbie isn't around and I happen to be the guide uh, somehow, what do I talk about? Faithfulness of God. Because he has, first of all, been faithful in taking Israel out of the land. Why is that faithful? Because God promised he would. But he's also been faithful in returning the land. <coughs> there's grain, there's wheat, there's barley, there's pomegranates, there's figs, there's grapes, there's what did I miss? There's a seventh something, right? All of these things are have returned to the land. God is faithful. But here, they are profaning the name of God. And in my opinion, okay, you're an adulterer, you're a fornicator. Well, you're definitely disobeying the law of the Lord, statutes of the Lord. But more importantly, you're profaning the name of God. If you have taken his name upon yourself, we pray in the name of Jesus. This isn't a magical formula. We don't pray a magical formula that if we say Jesus' name, it comes true. It comes true because we're supposed to be disciples of Jesus. And the things that we are praying are the things that God wants and the things that God will do. Um, just off the cuff. Uh, sorry. Hopefully I can find it. Uh, 37, Psalm. Psalm chapter 37. So we know about this, uh, hopefully by now, we know about the Hebraic poetry, where you state one thing and you state it again for emphasis. So listen to this statement. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desire of your heart. They sound like two different things. I might argue that they're the same thing written twice. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, because the desires of your heart is delight in the Lord. Him. Exactly, right? Um, so it, it's important to recognize that, okay, maybe we aren't doing sacrificing our kids to Moloch. But we have taken the name of God and placed it on ourselves. I am a Christian. Radi is a Messianic Jew. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. But you've taken the name of the Messiah, of the Christ, onto yourself. And so when you are in public and you yell at your coworker and people see it, who is being profaned? God. That's your problem. In the house of their God, they take or they drink wine taken as fines. Interestingly enough, in this time period, you have um, something called the uh, Samaria Ostraca. And again, we're in Israel, northern, where we're, uh, uh, Amos is talking to Israel. The Samaria Ostraca is about, um, there are a bunch of little uh, hot shirts with names and places and and things that were uh, sold or bought or whatever, wine and oil, mostly. And when the scholars started to look at these names, they noticed that they were coming from certain areas, and they were coming to the same person. They're like, how can that be? You're not supposed to own someone else's land. That's supposed to be their land. You're not supposed to be 
taking fine from other people, per se. But what does God say when Israel says, we want a king, just like every other nation around us? He'll take your land. He'll take your goods. Right. And it's not just the king. Um, there's a passage that talks about uh, the, the nobles of the land, the people that have found favor in the eyes of the king, who are also kind of given land to have. How can they be given land? It's already been divided, right? They've King's taken it, and he's like, okay, this isn't yours anymore, it's mine. And I'm going to give it to this person, and it's theirs. And so when they look at the Samaria Ostraka, they're like, ah, interesting. All of these places are going to the same person, even though they should be sold individually from this person to that person. Or, you know, of course you can sell it in the marketplace, but it's all being taken into one location, Samaria, the capital, right? And it's going to the nobles, and it's going to the king. And what do the people do with the wine that they take? They finds, drink it in the house of their god. Which god? <laughs> Who cares? They're all the same. We do the same thing that our neighbors do. So all the gods are the same. Doesn't matter which god. It just says, in the house of their god. Now, my translation doesn't capitalize god. But it could. It does, it's not capitalized in Hebrew one way or the other. It might be capitalized. It might be the name, the god of, of Israel. It might be... I mean, I think it's not capitalized here because the house of God is not in Israel, not in Samaria, it's in Judah. But yeah, go ahead, Vida. I was just going to say, as you're talking, it makes me think about um, how we are today because there's so much of Christianity that is all saying, oh, we all serve the same God, you know, this, this rubbish. And because of that, do you think that this is why a lot of our, the law and the you know, wickedness is just coming more and more prevalent into the church. It's a church because we're not compared, you know, we're not standing apart as we are serving only the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the true God. Yeah. We've made ourselves, oh, we serve any God. Because that's what you were saying, made me think that's why so much wickedness is starting to creep in everywhere. Yeah, so here's one of the problems you have. If you do not read the Bible, which God are you following? I love everybody. How? What does mean? <laughs> I can go out into the street, talk to 10 different people. I'll get 10 different definitions of what love is. And one of them is probably like, oh, just sleep with your boyfriend. That's love. Okay, love everybody. Eee. That doesn't seem like a great idea. Which God are we following? Very important question. And the only way we can answer that is to say, this God declares that this is the way that you love. You sacrifice. You allow the poor <clears throat> to come to your fields and gather from the corners. And in fact, not only that, but we see in the example of Boaz that he not just allowed them to come and gather from the corners of their field. He also actively gave them grain. Did you get enough? Do you oh, you have a mother-in-law too? Do you have enough for you both? You have some extra, right? That's love. Sacrificial and active. What does it mean to have mercy? What does that look like? What does it look like to have justice? So a lot of a lot of Christians might say, "Oh, you know, I can get I can get behind the love, I can get behind the mercy. I I kind of know what what those things mean. But what does justice mean, uh, Shimshon?" Yeah, um, just to um, throw in this there that in today's world, in trying the pressure of being political correct, is pushing many Christians to. Uh, to accept that wrong notion that we are also having the same God, and uh, because they want to be accepted, they will they would say that outside, and at the end of the day, they will have to begin to eat their words because if you say we are serving the same God, 
and the, it, the conditions of their gods is becoming different, then you, because you are what you've said, you want to continue to maintain that standard. So um, we begin to um, absorb a lot of um, heresies, a lot of um, uh, sin, and a lot of wickedness begin to grow, especially in the church, because we are not standing where God wants us to stand. Um, like um, Roddy earlier mentioned, you know, when we talk about the Torah, there are three aspects of the Torah that is not so much known to us today. Um, that's what we call the Kukim, that's what we call the Mishpat, and what we call the Edut. The Edut has to do with time. Um, yeah. When God says, okay, because I took you out of the land of Egypt, on this day you will have the Passover for me. That law has to do with time. You know, something happened, and so because of this event, you keep this law. Um, when we talk about the Mishpatim, those are the law you shall not kill, which cannot um, um, commit adultery. Those that make sense to us, but there are some other laws that God gives that sometimes doesn't make sense to us. Like um, you shouldn't eat some kind of food, you shouldn't um, wear some kind of clothing. Um, those are what we call the um, the Kukim. And um, whichever one we're talking about, it kind of identifies us as the people of God. And if we're not ready to stand to, to, to you know, to brace up ourselves and to say, yes, we're ready to identify ourselves as the people of God, then it's going to be a problem. Yeah. So let's, let's ask the question, what does God look like? Just a second. Uh, actually, go ahead. I was just thinking about, you know, God cannot be mocked, can he? That's the first thing. So when you read the scriptures, whatever you're reading applies to you, irrespective of whether it applied to the Amorites or the Israelites. God always cuts you to the quick with yeah. his word. I'm thinking about compassion. I think in the previous chapter, it says stifling all compassion and how important it is to try and maintain that compassion. I think when it talks about um, lying on garments taken in pledges, I think somewhere it says that if somebody gives you his coat as a pledge, give it back to him before the end of the day because he's got nothing else to sleep in. Yeah, Exodus 22, 26. And, and so if we're not observing those things, then we're not a witness to the nations around us. And also, in a sense, when judgment falls on them, in a way, it should also fall on us because we've not maintained that witness. And because we've not maintained that witness, who knows whether they would have repented by seeing how we live. So just thinking about that relationship, our relationship with God, it's about how we walk with him and how that affects other people around us. And, and so they were a nation that were wiped out. The Amorites were wiped out. And now suddenly we start doing the same things. And just because we know God doesn't make it right. But also I'm thinking about, like, if you look at Jonah, Jonah was sent to Nineveh and he didn't go. And in the gap between Jonah not going the first time and Jonah going the second time, how many people were abused, murdered, whatever, because Jonah didn't go and say, mm. God doesn't want you to do that. So our lives are not lived in a vacuum. There's always a responsibility on us because of the people around us. Anyway, but, so it was just that bit about the garments, really. I was thinking about that, yeah. that they should have been given back. We, we, we must be careful not to stifle all compassion. I think even Sodom and Gomorrah was judged partly because of the way they treated the poor and the oppressed, not just because of their sexual sin. Yeah, actually, it's it's more emphasis on the way they treated the poor than on the sexual Right, thank you. Anyway, it was just that. God can't be mocked. And, and if you read his word, or it just cuts you. I mean, it cuts me, 
not anybody else. I'm not at that moment thinking about how the Amorites or the Israelites live. It's about how am I living right now? Yep. Yeah, so that's Exodus 22, 26, which states, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. And here these people are taking the garments and lying down on the altars, presumably night after night. Um, so who is this God? Well, Amos states in this particular case for Israel, who this God is. I destroyed the Amorites before them. Though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks, I destroyed their fruits above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you for the years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. This is who their God is, right? And you can read in um, Exodus all the things that God's done, taking the people of Israel out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, which just as a reminder is, is how the, um, the Egyptians... Uh, showcased their pharaohs in their hieroglyphs so like holding um the head of their captives and then in the hand outstretched you'd have a scepter a mace and um the the emphasis being on the pharaoh had life had the choice of life and death over the his captive period the captive had no choice in the matter god brought the people of israel out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and he chose life for many of those Egyptians that came out with them. The Amorites, the people who were evil, the people who were strong, the people who the Israelites were like, yeah, we can't beat them. Sorry, we're going back. Retreat. Our kids are going to be slaughtered. Eh, will they? Well, in that case, you can wander around the wilderness for 40 years. On second thought, let's go fight them. Which is always an interesting thought. They decided that they could not defeat them. And when God told them the other alternative is to wander around for 40 years and die, they then said, I think we can fight them. But God had already told them, no, I'm not with you this time. You had your chance. Didn't take it. This is the God that they followed. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel? This is the God they followed. What do the prophets say? Well, most of the time they didn't want to hear what the prophets said because they were not following God. And so what did the prophets say? Things that the people did not want to hear. Interestingly enough, you get prophets like Huldah, not Huldah. You also get prophetesses like Huldah and Miriam, but you get prophets like Anna. It is possible to be a prophet or a prophetess and give a good message because sometimes you actually follow God. Sometimes you have someone like Miriam or Joseph, and they follow the statutes of the Lord. They follow the Torah of them. They bring their child to the temple as they were commanded to. And Anna stands up, a prophetess, declares good things. But most of the time, it wasn't good. Because most of the time, people weren't following God. Nazarites. Interestingly enough, why would it be important that God gave Israel Nazarites? I hear you ask. That's a good question. I'm not entirely sure, but perhaps we can look at a few of the people who were Nazarites. Well, first of all, let's do this. I want to read this, what it means a little bit. Genesis chapter 49. Um, Genesis 49, verse 26. Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountain, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among 
his brothers, Nazir, the one who is separated from among his brothers. Prince is a odd word for it. Um, it's also the same thing as in Deuteronomy 33:16, but it's this concept of being separated, right? Joseph was separated from his brothers, both by his father and then literally separated from his brothers because he was sold into slavery for a couple pieces of silver. Sound familiar? Huh. That sounds like something that Israel would do. Oops. So who are the Nazarites? Samson. God sent Samson, the judges. So despite the fact that the people of Israel were doing what was right in their own eyes, what did their God do? He delivered them. That's the kind of God that's talking in Amos. Because we remember, we have to know who God is. Otherwise, doesn't matter who which God are you following. Who cares? So he sent Samson. Who else is a Nazarite? Samuel to the high priest, and his sons are um, a little bit off, doing whatever's right in their own eyes. Well, you have at least one righteous person coming before God, Hannah, and likely her husband, Elkanah, possibly her sister wife as well. Um, and they come to the temple, or the tabernacle, actually. There was no temple yet. Samson was, or Samuel was, a Nazarite. And he delivers Israel. That's the kind of God that they follow, the kind of God that they're rejecting. Who else was a Nazarite? John the Baptist. John the Baptist, exactly. Now, John the Baptist will come after Amos, as will, by the way, um, Paul, who may have been a Nazarite for a little while, not for his entire life, but he might have made a Nazarite vow for a little while, as well as a couple uh, companions who went to the temple after the death and resurrection of Jesus, mind you. Uh, you actually have a few other people who, who may have been a uh, Nazarite. Uh, Eusebius claims that James, the brother of Jesus, took a Nazarite vow, uh, and thus his, his uh, title, James the Just, came about because he, he uh, took upon himself um, a life, uh, a strict life, but not necessarily a strict life against other people, but he was just in the way he approached God both for himself and for others. Um, one of the uh, queens, Bernice, Bernice, however you say it, uh, she took a vow of the Nazarites. In fact, when you read uh, Numbers chapter 6, it specifically says that both men and women can take the Nazarite vow. Um, I won't get into everything that Numbers 6 has to say because it's very fun and interesting to say, what is sin when Somebody dies right beside you, and now you've sinned. What? <laughs> Somebody else dies, and I've sinned? Uh, perhaps sin doesn't always mean exactly. Um, but nonetheless, you were required to take a sin offering to God, which is for unintentional sin, by the way. And that would be unintentional sin, because you've made a vow, and you have, in fact, broken it unintentionally. Um, which begs the question, how often do we actually unintentionally sin? I would say not often. Most of the time, it is intentional. I want that. I think I'm smarter than other people. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes, right? So God brings Nazarites. We're going to go a little bit late, sorry. Um, that's the kind of God that's talking to the people of Israel and the kind of God who is, in fact, being rejected. What did Israel do? Well, they made the Nazarites drink wine, and they told the prophets, don't prophesy, which we see several times in the Bible. Jeremiah, stop prophesying. We don't like it. Stop it. 
stop it. I'm going to throw a temper tantrum because you're, you're prophesying and I don't like it. Here, go in the pit, right? That's the kind of God that they are hearing from, the God who is a roaring lion, the God who redeemed, the God who warned these people. And when you read Jeremiah, the most part, he continuously warns them and continuously says, it's not too late. Even now, what? Sacrifice? Repent. Because they have sinned intentional. An intentional sin requires repentance. But again, God is also a roaring lion. He's going to state what will happen. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. And the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. And the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Declares the Lord. This is what's going to happen because you were like every other nation. You made me the God of creation, the God who met with people, the God who wanted to dwell among his people like every other God. And so this will happen. And you see it, these words. Uh, again, this was probably written in 750-ish, around 750 BC. And we will see it over and over and over in the prophets. Sometimes these exact words. Yep, go ahead. Uh, Vida first. I was just going to say, with these last few verses, it seems God is going to, he's dealing with those that say they're strong and they're swift and they, they're fighters and they're strength. Yep. These are people that are really not depending on God for anything but themselves. Yep. So in my mind, it's, it's God is really, it's showing that you become a people now that don't want me. You've made everything that you can do it yourself. And I'm really going to judge you that you can't. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. The the words here are actually uh, I think you find similar things in Lamentations. You find similar things in Psalms, Jeremiah, and the other prophets. We depend on ourselves. It's who we are. I'm strong. I'm righteous. I mean, I'm self righteous. Go ahead, Shimshon. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um. It's it's very very um consistent in the Bible, where every time the, the people subvert justice and oppress the poor, and God is very angry with it. Every community that oppresses the poor and subverts justice um, is going to be a recurring theme in this um, story, and in every place where that is done, God is always pronouncing judgment, just like you mentioned earlier, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, that was their greatest undoing. It was the, the injustice to people, the violence which they were, you know, administering to the people that lived in the city. And um, I'm sure those are the poor and the downtrodden people or the people that are humble in the society. Um, I always use this as a reference that even Nebuchadnezzar, in his ways that he didn't know God, um, when he was in his heart to take care of his, um, his um, subjects, God gave him the visions of the of the entirety of um, creation, from the beginning of the end to end of creation. Why would God do that? Daniel said, because it's in your heart. And God has seen the heart of, of um, Nebuchadnezzar that he wants to take care of even the poorest people in his community. And um, but that becomes a very interesting point for us to try to emulate. 
that anytime justice is taken away and um, the, the power being oppressed, then judgment of God will set in. God will always fight for, for his people. Yeah, and it's yeah. interesting. Just a note, this will probably be my final note for today. I'm a deacon at Christ Church. I spend the majority of my time studying, writing, making videos, things like that. Guess what I can't do? I mean, I can, but I spend so much of my time doing the work of God. Sometimes I don't do the work of God, right? And that's us, right? I'm going to do a really good job at my work. I'm going to, you know, the Bible tells us to, to uh, do everything to the best of our ability to serve God, to worship God. And so I'm going to go into my nine to five and I'm going to do a good job there. Great. You should. What else are you doing? What else am I doing? And also, from experience, the pastor has the least, the pastor, but the pastor has the least chance to really impact the world around. That's what the congregants do. If you're a mechanic, you have way more chances to help people than I do, right? I don't know how to fix the, the widow's car. You give me a car, I'll go on YouTube and be like, how do I fix this? If it's something super simple, maybe I can fix it. Maybe he'll make it work. Mechanic comes along, he actually does the work of God. Whatever job you have, school teaching, nursing, many of us perhaps are, are in leadership in the church in some way, in which case, make sure that you are doing something besides what you're supposed to. Make sure you're doing the actual work of God and you're not just the bravest warrior. I'm going to stand up in my pulpit and I'm going to stand against all the sins of this world. I'm going to declare that that sin in this country is bad and that country is evil and the things that people are doing in this country are evil. God will declare that. Your job is to go out and talk to those evil people and say, I love you. What do you need? We don't need to stand in the pulpit and say, everything is evil. This world is about to go to hell. God is a roaring lion. He didn't hold back against Israel or Judah. And you know what? He also didn't hold back against Damascus, a people that had nothing really to do with Israel or Judah. He declared, you did something wrong, you're going to have problems. Later on, Assyria, same thing, right? Our job is to go out, instead of selling the innocent for silver, serve them. The needy for a pair of sandals, serve them. The poor, those who are oppressed, give them justice, help them. Because if we don't, then God can come to us and say, ah, sorry, I can't send you Anna right now. Here, have Amos, because you're not doing what I want. Turns out, all the good news in chapter one about all the other nations, 